0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 793rd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who can teach us where to cut and trim our orchard trees. We're talking with Dr. Lee Reich about pruning fruit trees. Lee dove into gardening decades ago, initially with one foot in academia as an agricultural scientist with the USDA and Cornell University, and one foot in the field, the organic field. He eventually expanded his field to a farm den, more than a garden, less than a farm, and left academia to lecture, consult, and write. He has authored nine books and was a syndicated columnist for the Associated Press. Besides providing a year-round supply of fruits and vegetables, his farmden provides a testing ground for innovative techniques in soil care, pruning and growing fruit trees and vegetables, plus provides an educational site for workshops and trainings. Science and an appreciation of natural systems underpin all of his work. Welcome to the show today Lee, are you ready to rock? I'm ready. Awesome. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today?
1: Yes. Yeah, so it was a path, not, not planned, a lot, much of it. I, first of all, I didn't start out in agriculture. None of my family was in agriculture. The only thing I can remember is when I was very little for a few years, we had a garden. And I wasn't particularly enthralled with gardening, a vegetable garden but I wasn't thrilled with eating the good vegetables. Uh And uh, also we had a couple of fruit trees and I, and some of my family, we've always loved fruit. My path was always in chemistry. I had the goal was I was going to become a chemistry professor. And to that end, I graduated with a degree in chemistry. Then I went to graduate school. I was studying quantum chemistry. And then after three semesters of studying that, it began to seem a little too, it was theoretical chemistry, which is also mm-hmm. quantum chemistry. It began to seem a little too theoretical. And I thought maybe I'd switch paths, even though I i love chemistry and I still do. So I dropped out, moved to Vermont for a year and mostly spent my time playing pool and reading about gardening. Oh, wow. <laughs> for some reason, <laughs> I was a, a very good pool player. And after a year of that, I decided I'm going to get into this gardening and I'm going to go back to graduate school. And I went back to Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, where I had been and started looking around to where I could, which department I can go in. And by Mm -hmm. chance, there's a lot of chance involved here. By chance, the first department I went to was the soil science department. Wow. I remember Dr. Gordon Chesters. He looked like the professor from Back to the Future oh yes and, and he he basically i don't know what induced him to do this but he basically said to me he said join our department we'll have funding for you you can take a trip we had i had planned to take a couple of months before school started mm-hmm. uh going to europe with a, uh, my girlfriend at the time and they said when you come back you can start so i did that and uh basically got a, ended up getting a master's degree in soil science which I thought, and this is the chance part, like chemistry is a great foundation for soil science. Yes. that's what freaks people out, like the chemistry part, but I was very fluent in it. And then I decided there's a lot of aspects to uh, soil sciences, engineering uses of soil and other uses. And I was interested in the horticultural uses. So I continued and I got another master's in uh, horticulture and uh, soils science is a great foundation for horticulture. Yes. And then after that, I looked for a job, ended up getting a job at the USDA in Southern Delaware with what was then called the Soil Conservation Service. Now it's called the Natural Resource Conservation Service. I have to say, I didn't like that job so much. So I decided to go back to graduate school. There's a theme here. So, So I went back to graduate school and I was so lucky. I went to the Beltsville Agricultural Research Center of the USDA And they had a program with the University of Maryland where you can do your research at the USDA while you're going to school at the University of Maryland. So I got into that program working in the fruit lab, which was really, my love is growing fruits especially. Wow. And it was heaven working there. Unfortunately, after I got my doctorate, the program ended when you got your degree. And I was offered a job with Cornell in New York's Hudson Valley so i went to cornell and then after 5 years my uh, appointment expired and i decided to uh, just go off on my own and uh, write about gardening i thought it'd be so cool to just be on my property write about gardening be at home and uh, and lecture about it and uh, and do consultation and that's basically how i got how i ended up there <clears throat> but the the thing that really has carried through the Constant. When I went back to graduate school in soil science, I basically knew nothing about gardening except I had read a lot about read a lot of gardening books uh-huh. when I was in Vermont. But now I had a whole agricultural library, one of the best agricultural libraries in the country, right across the street from the soil science building. So I read a lot. I started gardening like a madman. I was crazed about gardening. And uh, and I have to say, this is decades later. I'm still crazed about gardening. And still, I can't help but read about gardening. And I can't help but running out to my garden and do do things. Right. And so I'm still there today.
0: Yeah, I'm a gardening addict too. I just, I <laughs> tell people all the time I can't help myself. Yeah.
1: it's uh, It's like a drug.
0: <laughs> right. I particularly like fruit trees because you plant them once. And you get fruit for decades and decades on them. In fact, at the urban farm, the place that I lived at for 32 years in Phoenix, I had two citrus trees that were over a hundred years old. That there. is
1: true. And I do, that's one thing. I like planting trees anyway, besides fruit trees. But I know my wife, when she moved here where I am now, and I've been at the present spot for 40 years, mm-hmm. uh, she she was always amazed because I had a row of apple trees. And after 25 years that those trees I decided they were in the wrong place. So I just cut them down and planted something else there. And she was just like, she said, you're just going to cut them down? Uh-huh. I said, yeah, and plant new ones. The wrong tree in the wrong place. People think you just tolerate a tree just because it's there. And I don't want to be cursing a tree for, for 30 years.
0: Yeah. And so the reason we reached out to you was about fruit tree pruning. So... Let's talk about, and you have a book about that, at least one book, right?
1: It's about pruning generally, not just fruit tree pruning, but there's a whole big section there just on fruit trees.
0: Oh, very good. And what are the key things we need to know about pruning backyard fruit trees, regardless of what kind of fruit we're talking about?
1: I think the most important thing is to read about it. And this isn't self-serving. Read something about it, reliable, because different fruit trees, if you want the best from a fruit tree, you really do have to prune them regularly most fruit trees and some fruit trees you can get by with almost no pruning Mm -hmm. and there's a whole spectrum so you decide if you have a fruit tree or if you're going to plant a fruit tree decide where on the spectrum you are as far as taking care of pruning and if you're not going to do pruning and you realize this pick a tree that doesn't take much pruning like a persimmon tree doesn't take detailed and even necessary annual pruning and but if you want a tree that if you're willing to learn about pruning and you can tolerate a tree then that needs a lot of pruning and at this end would be say an apple tree mm-hmm. or a peach tree. They do best with pruning and and basically all peach all fruit trees, except for the ones that don't take a lot of pruning need this pruning to let air and light circulate among the branches to cut down disease to for best uh, production of the highest quality fruit and also fruit trees bear, in a certain way each one a little differently mm-hmm. so you want to prune to promote this bearing wood and the one thing i besides i like to eat fruit besides liking to eat fruit the other thing i like about growing fruit trees is when you do it really well you really balance out you know how much growth you have that's vegetative growth yeah. how much fruit you have if you have too much fruit with respect to the amount of growth, the fruit isn't going to be high quality. It's going to be smaller, but also not as tasty. But if you have the balance just right, then you'll get plenty of fruit and good quality fruit.
0: And I know with in the case of both peaches and apples, my experience tells me that the fruit grows at the end of the branches. Mm. And- and the two fruit trees uh, Lee's got a look on his face like "Hmm. I don't know if that's the case for me so what I found in Phoenix with our desert peach trees is the fruit uh, congregated at the ends and if we didn't prune them back the branches would break
1: I guess depends on what you call the ends of branches because a peach tree bears most of its fruit on one-year-old stems so I guess if you didn't Um, If you didn't prune a peach tree a lot, just made little short growths at the end of the branches, that's where the fruit would be. Whereas apples uh, can bear on so-called spurs, which are long-lived fruiting units on branches up to 10 years old. So that's why a peach tree you prune more heavily to promote one-year-old shoots that will bear the next year. Whereas apples, you don't promote so much growth, but you do still have to keep the growth in balance.
0: That would make sense then for peaches, especially if they're one year, last year's growth, that's what's at the end. And if you don't prune, right. then you get last last year's growth farther out and last year's
1: growth right. farther out.
0: And before you know it, all the branches break.
1: And the other thing that you have then is you have a lot of non-bearing wood and you have leaves supporting a tree that has a lot of non-bearing wood. So it's, it's not going to the fruit.
0: Got it. And... If we're looking at a fruit tree, what specific steps should we take in evaluating and then pruning
1: that tree? First, find out what kind of tree it is, okay, (laughs) because that's going to make a difference. And then you look at, for any fruit tree, any plant really, if any woody plant, you want to first thing is look for diseased wood, you cut that back. Look for any dead wood, cut that back, and any branches that are interfering with each other, and you. Cut those back enough so that there aren't are no interfering branches, but like crossing rubbing, branches. crossing. Yeah. yeah. And so that's the first thing. No matter what kind of fruit tree it is. And well, before
0: we go to number two, isn't there something called pleaching?
1: Pleaching, Where- yeah, that's a special Where- technique. It's related to what's known as espalier. Yes. Which is training branches in sort of geometric ways, and often two dimensions, but it could be even three dimensions. And and it, you can do that without, with ornamental plants. And then it's mostly just a question of cutting back so randomly branches that are in the wrong place. But with fruit trees, you have to be more careful. I have a whole a chapter in my book on espalier because it's one of my favorite things. Uh-huh. And this would be re- related to pleaching. I think pleaching of a fruit tree would be more like espaliers all next to each other. Got it. And the, the cool part is that the trees never get that big. And so I like it because all the pruning can be done with your feet firmly planted on the ground. ground. And the other thing is it's very detailed pruning. And I researched a lot for this book because I'm really impassioned with um, SBA. And the thing is you really have to do this detailed pruning and there's all sorts of methods, but they don't all work everywhere. For instance, where I am in the Northeast, I've tried many times a method that was deter- that was originated in northern France in the late 1800s. It's just really the pictures in this book. And I have this book by somebody named Louis Lorette. Mm-hmm. And the pictures are fantastic of the production, the beauty of the trees. And it just doesn't work here. If you follow his exact instructions, it does not work here because the climate is so different and the day length is different. This really influences how it grows.
0: Got it. So just real quickly, pleaching is when two branches rub together and connect.
1: That's one. If you are pleaching, you're making a living fence. And one way to make that living fence stronger is you can twist the branches together so that they actually graft together and then becomes one. But when, when I'm talking about pruning a fruit tree to eliminate crossing branches, this is if you just have a tree trained out in the open Uh and some of its branches might cross and this would be too congested to let air and light in so you don't want you don't want that it's a different it's crossing branches but a different uh perspective on them
0: perfect thanks for that information (laughs) so that was number one number two for pruning trees
1: you have to look at what the bearing yet once you know what the bearing habit is of the tree you want to promote a certain amount of new, uh, of bearing wood and a certain amount of vegetative wood. So, uh, Getting back to the example of the peach tree, you prune a peach tree more uh, severely than you would, say, an apple tree. Mm -hmm. Because a peach tree, you want to cut back branches, not only to let more light and air in among the branches, but you want to stimulate new stem growth, which cutting back, shortening branches drastically does that. So that produces new growth that bears the next year so you have this balance of a certain amount of new growth for next year but then you have the old growth one year old growth that's bearing this year whereas an apple tree you want to look for these branches that have they start to you don't want to prune them too heavily because you want branches to be in place to build up these spur systems with that which actually look like little it's very short. It'll be like an inch high or two inches high over time. It'll uh-huh. look like a little tree on, on the branches, little trees dotted along the branches. Oh, and this that's is a good way of putting it. Fr- yeah, and this is where fruit is actually born. And so you want to promote that. But then after about 10 years, they do start to get decrepit. And then you could actually prune some of these little spur systems back to get new growth on them. Or you could even prune a whole branch back to grow and develop new s- systems like that. And those are the two extremes. There's other in between, for instance, like a plum tree. Depends if it's a European plum tree. They have uh, spur systems that are not as long-lived and they develop much more quickly. So you do a moderate amount of pruning on that, but always to let light and air and, and bounce out the vegetative growth.
0: That's really the reason then to prune is to get airflow through, and to take out any deadwood and make sure that you're creating that tree so that it makes an abundant amount of fruit
1: a good balance of fruit and stem growth mm-hmm. and what that is but you want to promote these fruit bearing units whether it's on one-year-old on old spurs or younger spurs you want to make sure you have that in an SBA you say you might have a horizontal branch because mm-hmm. that's When you train an SBI, a lot of times there'll be some horizontal branches. Uh, And the the spring, the fruit tree is beautiful because they often have beautiful blossoms, and it'll just be solid. The stem will be clothed solidly with blossoms, and then later in the season it'll be fruit. And then because you have to balance out the ratio of fruit to vegetative growth, you usually have to go back and thin out the fruits, pull off excess fruits so there's, they're not too close. Say, if it's a large fruit, like an apple, a peach, or a pear, you want to say five inches between the fruits. Just set the resources of the tree, have enough energy to make good quality fruit.
0: Yeah, and it, that's really important to thin the fruit. That way you don't get a lot of small fruit, maybe you're not overbearing the tree, why, why else?
1: Especially for apples and pears, and some other fruits, they get can get into a biennial bearing habit where mm-hmm. it's feast or famine. One year there'll be a lot of fruit and next year there'll be almost no fruit. And the way to, to uh, stop this is by reducing the amount of fruit. And one way you can reduce the fruit is by pruning. When you prune branches that were going to bear fruit, that reduces it. The other way is by hand thinning the fruit and and. Just scientifically what happens is the seeds within a fruit put out a hormone that suppresses flower bud initiation. And flower bud initiation for an apple tree and most temperate fruit trees occurs the year before the flowers open. So basically, if you have a lot of fruit, you get suppression of flower bud initiation that same season. So the next season, there's very few flowers. So the way you counteract this is by thinning the fruit Mm -hmm. to get repeat bearing.
0: Did not know that. Awesome. So listen up, everybody. This is from (laughs) Dr. Lee. He says it's okay and you have to thin your fruit trees.
1: It's more than okay. It's a must if you want, especially with certain fruits. Like I grow Asian pears Mm -hmm. and Asian pears just, they bear so heavily and so quickly that you want to leave all the fruit on. I'll thin the fruits maybe two or three times a season just because I think I've thinned enough And then all of a sudden, I just see there's tons of fruit here. I'll do it again. Sometimes (laughs) there's still tons of fruit, but it really influences quality. If you don't thin them, they're just blah. There's no taste. You thin them and they have good taste. Yeah. And Fortunately, small fruits like cherries do not need thinning. That'd be very tedious.
0: Oh, so one of the things that I do to thin my trees is early on when they start blooming, I just go in and shake the tree and shake the branches and knock off some of the fruit and then a month into it, I do the same thing and that knocks off some extra fruit as well.
1: Yeah, but a lot of times they won't, if, they, if they've if they set well, they won't just they won't, fall off. Yeah. Although I did read, I've never done this, but in some older gardening books I read, you take a broom handle and you put a length of garden hose on the end and just keep smacking the tree, which will knock them off.
0: Oh, interesting. All right.
1: But I never did that.
0: Yeah, I had a very interesting experience about 15 years ago in Phoenix. We had a late freeze and it knocked most of the fruit off of one of my peach trees and that year i had the best biggest most incredible peaches come off of that tree and i still had a lot of peaches it just there you go off. yeah it knocked off most of them
1: yeah that's so. as they say qed thus it is proven exactly. Yeah, commercially thing things very important but they do it with chemicals do it by hand right That's the beauty of growing fruit trees at home. Right. You can do that.
0: Well, are you familiar with Dave Wilson Nursery? Yeah. Yeah. They, about 15 years ago, put out a backyard orchard culture concept and document where they have us keep our trees at six to 10 feet tall.
1: That's my kind of tree. Feeds a little high for me, though. Yeah. I've had, I have some apple trees that I grafted myself onto a super dwarfing rootstock. Huh? It's called Mauling 27, and the trees top out at six feet. Oh, nice.
0: Yeah, so you can just walk along the rows and harvest right there right. without a ladder.
1: Right. Yeah. And there's been a trend over the years to get commercially to get more and more d- d- dwarf fruit trees actually bear more than large fruit trees, huh? not more per tree, mm-hmm. but if you had a certain area, and you planted either full-size fruit trees or dwarf ones. The mm-hmm. dwarf ones would bear more, only because they're uh, they're more efficient harvesters of sunlight. Oh. And a big old tree, a lot of the energy is just keeping that wood alive. Whereas a yes. dwarf tree, it's not doing that.
0: I th- I think a lot of that can be accomplished with keeping the trees small as well, can it? You mean just that's pruning dwarf. the trees small? Yeah, you did. Right, it's more. a little
1: hard dwarf fruit trees have other characteristics too a- apple trees especially is that they're very precocious they start to bear sooner which slows down growth because they're putting energy into food production so they bear sooner but also they're more precocious they bear i don't know if you've seen a lot advertised for columnar apples they show pictures of with like a single stem and it will be like yes. four feet high just solid apples yep. they also tend to those spur systems i was talking about
0: mm-hmm.
1: they tend to make those spur systems more quickly. And dwarf rootstocks can induce this. If you have, say, a Macintosh apple tree and you have it on a full-size standard tree, it won't bear as soon or as much as a dwarf root tree. As much per per foot of branches. the the important thing with that is not letting them overbear because when they put so much energy into bearing, right? So that's what, where thinning comes in. I had a wine sap apple tree that I grafted on this Malling twenty seven rootstock mm-hmm. just for fun, and it topped out at about four feet high, and that was it. And it had apples on it. How many apples could a tree that small hold? Okay, <laughs> right. not that many.
0: Wow. One of the challenges we have in the low desert, I now live in Asheville, but uh, still run the, our fruit tree program in Arizona in the low desert, is dwarfing rootstocks don't do really well in the desert soil. There's not a lot. That,
1: that's a good point, because if you have a dwarfing, a standard fruit tree on, say, a seedling rootstock, which means yep. you just plant the seed and whatever, it's very tolerant of a wide variety of soil conditions, whereas the dwarfing rootstocks really need you need like top-notch nutrition drip irrigation, everything has to be perfect. Good drainage. Yeah. They're very susceptible to, to problems.
0: We do have one peach in that program that's a dwarf peach. And we have the apples are on semi-dwarf fruit stock. So good choice. Yeah. Cool, cool. So you teach classes on this. Tell me about that.
1: I do a lot of lectures, those are sort of classes. And I have taught at the New York Botanical Garden. I gave a whole series of things on growing fruit trees. And then i more in, I guess, not just recent years, but I do a lot of workshops here at my farm den. Nice. Maybe I should define farmden.
0: Please because jump I in. Let's let's talk about your farm <laughs> den
1: and, and what it looks like. So I started out with a house and three quarters of an acre, and I planted just so many different fruit trees in this amount of space and a vegetable garden and a lot of fruit bushes and some mm-hmm. flowers. And that was very doable. I could just go out and... It was, not that much. And then I happened to had the opportunity to buy an acre and a half field just to the south.
0: Ooh, nice. And, uh,
1: so I did that. And then I went crazy planting because there's a lot of people maybe haven't heard of pawpaw trees. Yep. So pawpaw is a native fruit, and I originally had two pawpaw trees on my three quarters of an acre. And then I thought, since I write about gardening, it'd be nice to have more pawpaw trees so I could test different varieties and test market them. So I planted 20 pawpaw trees. And then I also grow a hardy kiwi fruit. And I had three plants here on an arbor behind my house. And I thought, since I got this land, and since I write about gardening, it'd be good to test these things and test market them. So I planted 20 kiwi vines. And it goes on and on and on. I planted eight chestnut trees. And so I decided this was more than a garden now. This was what I'm going to call a farm then. More than a garden, less than a farm, or perhaps another perspective perspective would be more than one person can take care of and, and remain sane.
0: Yeah. So we I moved from a third of an acre in Phoenix to four acres in Asheville. Oh Watch and, out. And and so far this season, I planted 105 fruit and berry bushes. And I've got about 80 more to go. What what are you going to do with all these? The fruit trees? I planted 80 elderberries. So I'm going to be commercially growing elderberries. The rest are experimental. Zager Genetics. Floyd Zager Genetics. Well, yep.
1: Isn't he connected with Dave Wilson?
0: He is connected yeah. with Dave Wilson. And so this last season I brought in 10 different varieties of their hybrids in this area that i live in stone fruit don't always do great i'm experimenting that
1: that that area is east of the rocky mountains
0: (laughs) yes that is the case what stone fruit don't do well east of the rocky
1: mountains if you have a perfect site if you're talking about growing them organically yes yeah if you have a perfect site there's some hope
0: yeah so i have 10 varieties of floyd zager hybrids that i'm going to play with So that's 50 of them, and we'll see. I'm all about experimenting, and after year four, if they're not producing, I am going to take the chainsaw out.
1: That's tough to do. Easier said than done. Yeah. Not the physical part, the uh, emotional part.
0: Yeah, exactly. Heard that. So you have an epic It says here, who did you drive a 1,000 miles to meet? Tell me about that.
1: (laughs) So when I first got into agriculture, I started gardening like a maniac, and uh, this was back in the early '70s. And I had read about this guy. uh, His name a lot of people probably never heard of him now, but he was a big name in the early 1970s. His name was Scott Nearing. He wrote a book with his wife called "Living the Good Life." Basically, he went to the country and started growing stuff on his own. And basically homesteading, a little background on this guy. He was, first of all, he was a a political science professor Uh at the University of Pennsylvania. And he was fired because he was trying to support laws that would prevent child labor. Oh, wow. And coal mining was a big thing back then. Mm -hmm. And children were working coal mines. So he got fired. And he also ran for Congress once. So he's he's a very politically active person. And uh, he just threw up his hands and thought he'd move to the country and uh, grow his own stuff. I had read this book, and he lived on the coast of Maine. And I'm thinking, and this would be pre-internet, of course. And I didn't have a phone number for him. I didn't call to say, I'm I'm thinking of coming there. But I was in Wisconsin at the time. And I just hopped into my van and uh, drove out there. And when I got there, there was some other people there. And a lot of people volunteering or interning, however you want to say it. Yeah. In his garden there, he had a beautiful garden, he had this uh, nice stone wall around the garden, he had built his own house. And he was at that time, when I saw him, he was in his, uh, I think it was in his 80s, early 80s. And uh, so it's Scott and Helen Nearing. And so I worked there. I remember one thing that that really got me out. So I had put in my first garden and I tilled it up, turned it over by hand, and it was a clay saw and it was all sticky and it was really not that much fun to to work. But in his soil, is the most beautiful soil to work for. was soft and then rich in organic matter. And I remember commenting that to this other woman who had been there for a while. And she said his garden used to also have this really poor soil. And just using a lot of organic matter and good practices became nice and mellow. And he also had these beautiful compost piles, just like big squares of neat compost piles. And it's interesting that when you see something like that, various things how you copy them yeah but anyway but the other formative part of that was so we would work in the morning and then have lunch together which was always interesting because a lot of people sitting around and talking about social things or agricultural things and then so you do whatever you want so I went back to my uh, van to take a nap so I'm taking a nap and also I hear this pounding on the window and I said, this? So this guy comes by. This guy's big shock of gray hair, and he says, hey, "You want to help me?" So this is a guy that lived next door to Scott Neer, he had bought some land from. Uh-huh. He said, "Yeah." So he wanted me to help him uh, haul buckets of of rocks up from the beach nearby for his farm stand. And this person was L. A. Coleman. Oh, my gosh. Really? <laughs> so, so I spent some time with Elliot Coleman, asking him tons of questions. And he's very energetic and very sharing of information. So I was helping him out and learning a lot, just like talking to him, while like potting mixes, trying all sorts of things on my own. And it was great to speak to somebody who's, you know, ahead of me. And... Uh, and then that evening, I remember he had a, just a little cabin that he lived in, as I remember it. And he, he said he invited me in there. And then he showed me his library books. And he said, yeah, just just take a look at the books, which which I, like Elliot, I really love books and gardening books, especially old gardening books. So I remember I had a pad. I'm just taking notes all the time, just reading. He gave me some cookies he made and I had a great time there. And, and I learned a lot about things that I probably would've come across eventually, or yeah. maybe not. And then I went back and, and the interesting thing is, so that's when I started. And then 10 years later, I had this is after 10 years of very crazy gardening, getting two graduate degrees and a doctorate degree and reading all I could find about gardening, both in the popular press and in uh, the academic world. I went back to Scott Nearing's to visit him again. And it was it was quite different. It was, first of all, nobody else was there. It was weird because I just drove there again. And yeah. it was just Scott Nearing and me. And we had an interesting conversation, I don't know, for an hour or two. And he had just built a new house. He was 94 at the time. Oh, wow. <laughs> and when I came there, he was sawing wood by hand. And then I also went to see Elliot again. So every year is Elliot. And it's always interesting because we don't agree on everything. But it's always interesting to hear his perspectives. And you don't right? have to. I like when people disagree with me because that's how you learn something. Exactly. And interestingly, I'm going to visit Elliot next month, too.
0: Oh, nice! We were so, lucky enough to get Elliot on the podcast uh-huh. in November of 2018 for our 400th episode. So, wow. if you're listening to this, want to go back and listen to Elliot? He, it was a great interview.
1: Yeah, and yeah. he he taught me a, a few things that were very formative in my gardening career. Uh-huh. One thing he said: I remember I was going to plant strawberries, and I had read, "Don't plant strawberries in." recent lawn because there'll be grubs there so i said you think i should do it he said yeah just do it maybe the strawberries will fail maybe they won't and they didn't and then the other thing was he said if you need a tool and you can't find it you know for sale or whatever so just make it (laughs) so i do that i do that i like to make things i do that all the time it's really fun to make 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 just whatever you need, just make it exactly the way you want it. And, oh, and then the other part of the story is, so now when people come to visit my farm, then
0: uh-huh.
1: I have more compost. I'm crazed over compost. And also because I got this background in soil science, my main interest was soil microbiology and uh, and there's the science and it's also the practical part. And the practical part isn't 100%. You, there's not science behind everything. It's not contrary to science, but there's a lot more there than science knows. And I have about 10 or 12 or more beautiful, just like Scott Nearing, beautiful square compost bins. Nice. And and my soil is at least as good, I don't want to brag, but probably better than Scott's was. Yeah. You just put your hand, it's beautiful. It's a joy to work in.
0: Yeah, in my front yard in Arizona, so we have very clay, caliche-like soil uh-huh, in Arizona. Right. And uh, I worked my front yard for 32 years, and at one point, I dug down 24 inches, and it was all this incredible topsoil. There was no more clay caliche stuff until I got down two feet, and that just comes from adding compost year over year.
1: I guess the hard part I always thought I've never gardened in the far west uh-huh. but is finding especially dry areas is finding enough organic materials
0: yeah is- yes and what we in, really encourage people to do everywhere get wood start with woody mulch often right. when I'm talking to somebody about an orchard they have a, a two thousand square foot backyard that's just dirt it's like put in the plumbing put in the electrical put a foot of woody mulch in and when 18 months the you're gonna have some incredible soil there.
1: Yeah, but you need rain to make that soil happen.
0: It's interesting. I experimented this a lot with this a lot in Phoenix and the so I was at a friend of mine's house maybe five years ago and it hadn't rained in four months. And he had two feet of woody mulch in his backyard and I dug down and I, and there were a good, a foot in, it was nice and wet. Oh. And I, I said to him, so have you been watering this? And he said, Nope, that's just from the last rain four months ago. Wow. So that woody mulch really acts like a great sponge yeah. to hold onto that water.
1: Yeah. I, I have a, I was in another part of my property near the road, I have a big pile of wood chips and, and periodically I have a sign of just wood chips wanted And there's always, I always eventually get a pile.
0: And I listen, I'm suburban rural here where I'm at. And a month Mm -hmm. ago, I heard a wood chipper. And (laughs) my brain goes, wood chipper? Where's the wood chipper? (laughs) So I, and it was a couple of blocks away. And I, I went and explored and it was the local power company and they were doing some tree trimming and wood chipping. And the moment that wood chipper turned off, I was right there. I was like, you yeah. guys want someplace to dump that? And he said to me, oh my gosh, this is a two hour round trip for me to dump this. If I can dump it in your yard, I, I would be much appreciated. So they actually brought me three loads total.
1: Right. That was it last year. I think it was last year I had to sign out. And the first time I was inundated with wood chips, but nice. it's good. Yeah. It's free. It's, it's recycles. Yep. It, it makes your soil better. What else couldn't you ask for?
0: <laughs>
1: Amen to that.
0: <laughs> so let's talk, before we shift, let's talk quickly about your books. Just give me just a little rundown of your favorites, if you have them, and let's
1: definitely talk about the pruning book first. So the pruning book was, I think it was my third book Ooh. and, and pruning is one of my favorite things, as I said, because I think it really brings together both the science and the art of growing fruit trees, especially, but Mm -hmm. not only fruit trees, other plants too, where you Mm -hmm. really, as I said earlier, you you strive to balance out both vegetative and fruitful growth to get the best fruit possible. Mm -hmm. And so there's this whole section Uh, on that this book was uh, particularly nice because the publisher contacted me to publish the book oh nice that that worked out nicely and i've been very pleased with the book it actually is my best-selling book
0: oh wow what's it called
1: the pruning book
0: by lee reich yeah nice
1: and and that's one of my favorite books. Another one of my favorite books, which is temporarily out of print because I'm going to be revising it, is was called. Is, it's been revised and been out of print and back in print twice already, no once. It's called Uncommon Fruits, Worthy of Attention was the original one.
0: Oh, I remember this book.
1: Really? Yeah. <laughs> The Uncommon Fruit Book came out in 1990 or 91. And this started when I was working for Cornell here in the Hudson Valley. 90% of what's grown is apples uh-huh. and the, also some pears and plums. And it seemed, first of all, to have so much of just one fruit being grown in, in, in an area. It doesn't seem ecologically wise. Mm. And also, it's, there's other reasons why I didn't think it was that wise. First of all, it's we're only 90 miles from New York City so why so there's and there's tons of tourists that come here because it's a really beautiful area and so why grow something that and they're shipped all over the world the apples so why grow something that's shipped all over the world when you have all these tourists coming in they could be buying right right there and also since apples in this part of the world do take a lot of sprays there's and there's there's some suburbanization here so there's that conflict between houses and orchards. You don't want to spray too close to a house. And you can grow good apples in a lot of places. I thought it'd be nice to just see other fruits that had potential. And there's a lot of uncommon fruits that had a lot of potential. Matter of fact, somebody who I met who wrote a chapter in the 1937 Yearbook of Agriculture, George Darrow, he mm-hmm. wrote a chapter called Some Unusual Opportunities in Fruit Breeding. He was talking about fruits that are not well known that should be better known and could be commercial fruits. So a lot of the fruits I wrote were whole chapters on those fruits, like pop, persimmon, cornelian cherry, hardy kiwi fruit, and, and some others. And and it was just a fun book to write because I like doing the research. I grow the fruits so I can watch them. I taste the fruits. And then when that went out of print, I also thought, it'd be, thought of some other fruits to add to the book. Uh-huh. So the thing came back in print as uncommon fruits for every garden. Oh, interesting. And then that recently, when that came back in print in, I think, 2004, but then now it's out of print. But now there's a publisher interest, and it's going to come out again maybe in two or three years, as soon as I write the uh, revisions. Yeah. And I'm going to have more fruits. And this time I'm going to have recipes, too, for some of the fruits. So yeah. that, that was a fun book, and that's one of my favorite things. Because the other thing about these fruits, not only are they uncommon, but they have unique flavors and they also are much easier to grow. Let them take no work at all. No, I mentioned pruning, let them don't require any pruning and uh, no spraying. I'd say, yeah, pretty much all the fruits do not require any spraying. So they're good both environmentally and great backyard fruit and potential, which I've given talks on. And then my other book, which reflects my other love in gardening. So I have fruits, pruning, And and soil. So I wrote a book Uh, called Weedless Gardening, which is being revised. It's still available, but it's being revised. And I'd like to change the title to Weedless Gardening, but the original title is Weedless Gardening. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it basically basically has a four part system, and one of the most key parts, which is everybody does this now. But when the book came out, just like the uncommon fruits, a lot of these fruits. Have been researched more heavily now and people are growing them so it's, they're not that uncommon now same thing with the weedless gardening one of the main tenets of it was uh, to abandon tillage so no-till gardening and a lot of people do this now but when the book came out it was not that common in that fact yeah. somebody who wrote I, I got very good reviews on the book Except somebody who's a well-known garden writer wrote a review that was panning the book and said, if gardening isn't all about tilling, what is it about?
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Um, Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I can't even respond to this.
0: Right. Yeah, Lee just rolled his eyes uh, (laughs) along with me. Yeah,
1: But uh, yes, Lazy Gardener here. (laughs) So those are my three favorites. Oh, no, my last one that I showed you the cover of. Yeah. Uh, So I had written a book. Actually, I shouldn't say favorites, because I also wrote a book on growing figs in cold climates.
0: Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Which
1: is figs. I've been growing figs since I started. The first plant I ever put in the ground, it was in a pot, though, was a fig. Wow, cool. And I don't know why. I was living in an apartment in Madison, Wisconsin. It's not fig country, but <laughs> uh, but something about figs. And not only me, they capture the imagination of a lot of people. Yeah. And I've been growing them since. So I wrote a book on growing figs and coal climates But then I also okay. have this little book. I So after I wrote that book, I needed a break. A publisher actually contacted me about if I want to write a book on the USDA hired over the course of about 50 years, beginning in the late 1800s, 20 artists to do watercolor drawings of all sorts of different kinds of fruits. I guess wow. one reason would be to codify this is what the fruit, this fruit tastes like. This yeah. is what a weatherspoon apple looks like. Yeah. And so I did that and it also helped promote the fruits so they could, they use the drawings. So I didn't really feel like writing a book, but then I was thinking, geez, if anybody should write this book in all modesty, I think I should be the one to write it because first of all, I'm crazy over fruit mm-hmm. and fruit growing And also I worked for the USDA right across the street from where the original drawings are being housed. Wow. And the fruit lab where I worked, which was, as I said, across the street, they also had in a case there, some wax replicas of fruit, which was also done at that time. But anyway, so the fruit, so I looked through, had the job, but it was really pretty heavenly for me of looking through 7,500 watercolor drawings. And choosing two hundred fifty wow. of them for the book,
0: and, and then, Lee just shared the book with me on screen. Yeah. It's a little book, and
1: it's a, it's a coffee table book in your hand. It says,
0: "All right, there you go." <laughs> and showed me some of the pictures in it. They're amazing.
1: Yeah, I'm really a sucker for fruit illustrations too. Nice, but so I and then I was they just gave me free reign. Just organize nice. them some way that you want write an introduction to the book and an introduction to each chapter. And that's it. And here it is. So I I really like this book.
0: Nice. Congratulations on
1: that. Yeah, thanks. But I'm taking a break now. I'm not writing another book for a year.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you learned from
1: it. It's hard to figure out where I failed, not because I've been so successful, but I failed so many times. And this is gardening. If it's not all about tilling, but it is all about failing and yeah. then uh, learning. And uh, so one consistent failure has been growing apples. Mm. So, so I live in a, a place where there's unbelievably good soil naturally, besides the fact that I built it up even more, but it's a river bottom soil. So it's good soil naturally. It's in the bottom of a valley. So all the cold, dank air comes down there. So you get a lot of disease problems, Mm. late frost problems. And it's colder. It's five degrees colder than than my town four miles away. So I've been growing apples for many decades now. And some years I would actually spray them. Some years I sprayed them organically. Some years I even sprayed one or two very benign but not organic, officially organic sprays. So this year, I just saw, for this. This is very innovative. I decided to stop growing apples. <laughs> oh, wow. Because the amount, if I spray or don't spray, I still a lot of times get hardly any apples. So, yeah,
0: because uh, of the disease and test pressure.
1: But I have to say that when I have gotten apples, this is what kept me going. So there's a lot of apple orchards around here. So I can buy apples, not necessarily organic apples. But there's a variety I grow called macoon, which is a very popular apple here. And there's a local orchard within five miles that also grows macoon. My apples, I have to say my macoons taste different. And to me, far and away better than the ones in the orchard. And it could be the halo effect where people think whatever they grow t- tastes better I think they yeah. feel that way so I'm not discounting that because but on the other hand so I grow another variety that I uh, was very unsuccessful with and the local orchard same orchard grew it very well I don't know so it was it, that's what kept me going just because my apples did taste better plus it's nice to be able to pick your own apple trees oh the, the way I that was one way I saw it that let me just talk about another Failure because I have another really big failure that I haven't given up on yet. So I grow, try and grow celery. And celery, for some reason, I've planted it now for about eight years in the garden. And every year it gets this disease. I think it's cel- celery blight. And I tried and I read about it. It could be disease seed, could be disease soil. <clears throat> I've tried everything. I, I, And and nothing works. And the weird part is that I have celery growing in the greenhouse and I let it self-seed in the greenhouse because then I have it for winter in the greenhouse and never has same seed, same soil, basically, and it it always succeeds.
0: Uh, Yeah. And you don't have problem with in the greenhouse. No, not at all. Not
1: even slightly. Wow. That's that's a a solution in progress, I hope. Uh, I love it. (laughs) And what's
0: your biggest success?
1: biggest success this was related to my my failure with apples because uh-huh. even though i fail with apples i have a lot of success with other fruits but my biggest success is with blueberries Ooh. I, get, I get and i have to say from my graduate research i studied blueberries so maybe mm-hmm. there's some connection hopefully yeah, between spending all that time in school and and growing them But my blueberries i've never seen blueberry bushes look like this or bear like this it's we have 16 bushes And we harvest almost 200 quarts a year from that. Wow. And the harvest starts at the end of June and continues into early September. And about 70 quarts go into the freezer and the rest into our bellies. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And the good part about it is I really love blueberries.
0: (laughs) What's not to love? Right. Yeah. Growing them in the low desert is really hard. Some people are good and successful at it. Apparently, and I'm starting to grow them here in Asheville, apparently they grow really well here.
1: The secret is in the soil. Yeah. And this is what I studied for my graduate research, is that you need a soil that's very acidic, very high in organic matter, low in fertility, which is odd, Yeah, uh, well-drained, and well-aerated, and moisture. Yeah. And, and moisture. So, so I have mine so every year you talk about the wood chips so I use put down some organic mulch whatever's available, I've used wood shavings wood chips, leaves whatever, so every year I've put down about 3 inches for about 30 years and the uh, soil this is a blueberry heaven, that soil it's just so moist and I use the word mellow, this is used uh, for soil sometimes because the rich soils of the say Midwest prairies yep. they're molosols and I think that's related to the word mellow it just has good friable texture if you have it in your hand and you just crush it it just crumbles nicely
0: there you go nice and what drives you i
1: guess just passion interest in. i just find agriculture not only fruit growing and not only just gardening but even farming i just find it so interesting and there's so many different aspects to it there's mm-hmm. the, uh, the chemistry the biology the physics the, and the biology includes like the microorganisms. That's just so interesting. And you do it and then you get plants that grow. <laughs> plants that, that can... Right. You know, I'm, I'm always amazed. Say, like, What's fun about gardening is you prune a plant well and it responds the way you want. That's fun. Or it responds in a different way. That's fun also because you get to learn something about that. Or you see your tomato leaves, your tomato plants stripped of leaves and think, wow, this is a really bad problem, but so interesting. And then early on, I've done, known this for years, a big tomato hornworm, which is such an interesting looking creature. And then you're about to kill it and you read something about it and you see all these little, what look like grains of rice on its back and this is a parasite so you don't kill it you leave it and uh, every year not every year about every seven years i'll see some tomato leaves stripped and yep. i figure there's a hornworm this is the first year i couldn't find the hornworm but i'm assuming it had the parasite because they always do and i yep. don't spray everything basically i don't spray hardly anything i spray period on, on the cabbage family for the cabbage worms and I think that's pretty much the only spray I use. Nice. And this is, it's so interesting. And you get exercise. You get to be out in the sun. And what else would I want to do?
0: And if you could recommend two books for our listeners, what would they be and why?
1: Okay. So this would reflect somewhat my background, but one book, and this is a book that I saw that first night at Elliot Coleman's house where that, that I was looking through. Uh-huh. And this is a book called Intensive Gardening. It was written in the 1950s. And it's a little hard to get this book or a lot hard. you researched university libraries or USDA libraries. And it's written by a, a woman, Rosa O'Brien, obo apostrophe B-R-I-E-N. And the nice thing about this book, first of all, this really got me Further along on no-till, so she has a whole system. Oh, She had a commercial farming operation in England. Uh And she had this whole system where, first of all, she used no-till. She made compost, a lot of compost, and she would just lay it on top of the ground. And then she had this system for weeds rather than, oh, it's a weed, got to get rid of it. She would let weeds grow a certain amount and then remove them. And part of the system also was when they were weeding, they had these boxes of a certain size, the people working there, Uh and they would always put the weeds into the boxes and stuff them in. And then when they turned them over, it was like a certain number of boxes would be one layer on a compost pile
0: nice and, and
1: she had a special thing for weeding and then she even had when they got to the end of the row she had everyone who worked there they should stand up and stretch their legs so that they don't get sore it's just like a whole system it's nice to have a, a system for doing things and then she had the no-till and she had the great compost yeah. piles use of compost so that was really good and i don't know if it's a book that i would say this should be the first book you should read about gardening just read a regular easily available beginner gardening book but the other one that i was going to recommend and this is because i do believe that the foundation of good gardening is good soil Mm -hmm. and uh, i hate to say it but this was a textbook that i had and and this is very available on amazon anywhere and it's called soil science by foth foth and turk and it's a little dry but if you get into it if you really have some interest in learning about soil, you will learn about soil. I even uh, have dealt with some small farmers around here who don't really know that much about soil. The good and the bad thing about gardening, Mm -hmm. even farming, is you have a million years of evolution behind you. Seeds (laughs) want to grow. Plants want to grow. You could do just any one of a number of things and you know nothing just make a whole just throw a seed on the ground it's going to do something and so that makes people a little sometimes people are off put off by by making it too scientific but if you really have the science you can raise gardening up a notch so yeah. this will just take you it's a it's a relatively simple textbook and you can skim over the parts that uh, that get too technical and then maybe you, at some point you want to go back to them but yeah, i think it's really good
0: Cool. Thank you for that. So,
1: Fath and uh, Turk Soil Science and Intensive Gardening by Rosa Dalzel O'Brien.
0: Perfect. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: So this piece of advice, I think, is for you also. Don't plant too it. much. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually trying to, at some point I was saying, I hope I don't have too many plants that I can't cannot give the best care to each plant. Mm-hmm. And I was feeling that way. So I'm really the 20 pot trees i planted mm-hmm. they're dressed they're down to about 4 now and uh-huh. i might reduce it more it's just and also cuz i don't have to test market them cuz other people are doing these things right and people are crazy about happily crazy about them anyway so i don't i just can grow now how much we need not how much i have to evangelize about
0: <laughs> yeah there you go there you go awesome thank you so much for joining us on the show
1: today lee well, thanks for having me. It's really been a pleasure.
0: Yeah, it's been amazing chatting with you. I love your background and history and how can our <laughs> listeners get a hold of you?
1: So the easiest way is to my website, which also has my email address, but my website is www.leereich.com. one word l-e r e-i-c-h dot com. And on that site you'll see I have a blog if you want to visit my garden or farmden virtually. I write a blog every week saying what's going on and and sometimes digress into other things that I want to talk about (laughs) with photos and also uh, tells you something more details about me and you can purchase my books there and probably some other stuff too.
0: Awesome. Again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Lee Reich.